Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oates, and the program is Everything Cooperative. We talk about the benefits of cooperative, the cooperative business model, mainly for creating financial and social wealth. And this morning in the studio, we have Ms. Kate Marion, and she is the Program Manager of Technology and Innovation at the Department of Small and Local Business Development. And they are the goal, I would say, Kate, is where you're trying to create businesses and keep old businesses so you can create community wealth. Is that it? Correct. Okay. Can you tell us how you got to this job? What? It, how, how did you get here? Mm-hmm. Early in my career, um, I spent a lot of time with um, child welfare, foster care, and adoption for about seven years. And in doing that work, really understanding that social services on their own aren't enough to support communities, and really wanting to look at the question of economic justice and economic wealth. So I went back to law school, and in law school I focused on something called antitrust and then consumer protection, trying to understand the full scope of what's necessary for communities to thrive. Economic justice and antitrust, they don't seem to go together to me. How does that fit? So um, antitrust, which uh, originally was created in the United States, was the idea of understanding when people lock in market power, how that creates inequality. Monopolies. Yes. Okay. And so when you see too many monopolies or monopolistic behavior, then you start to see growing inequality. And so you want to look at what the other side of the equation is. How are you building small companies and how are you making sure that people aren't locking in markets and essentially just taking up too much profit? Okay, so you're in law school, coming out of child care? Yes. <laughs> okay, to study antitrust. Correct. All right. So how did that lead you to program manager of tech and innovation with the D.C. government? Yeah, so I started actually in um, district government at the Department of Consumer and Regulatory Affairs, which does um, all of the regulations for businesses and buildings. And we took a long, close look at business regulation and trying to understand how that could be streamlined and simplified to allow more people to start businesses. And that that grew into looking at business development and moving to the Department of Small and Local Business Development. Okay. So I understand that there is a group called Cooperative Stakeholders Mm -hmm. that have met for the last six or seven months or so. How did that form? So um, the Deputy Mayor for Planning and Economic Development in D.C. released a new economic strategy this March. And as they were building the strategy over the fall, they held a lot of one-time stakeholder meetings trying to understand what what were the activities and what were the needs for the full economy. I participated in that very closely, and we took several topics from that to continue discussions where community members still needed to build up their ideas more um, to figure out what type of support they wanted. And cooperatives was a very um, sort of hot topic among a number of stakeholders stakeholders um, who were seeking interest in, in sort of how does more support build for a cooperative ecosystem here in the district. And you just jumped to it, huh? That's, that's correct. <laughs> she said, this is me. 
So we, uh, we do stakeholders in, an, in a number of different groups, and it started actually with a very different program or, or perhaps a related program. Um, the first program that I worked at at DSLBD is the Aspire to Entrepreneurship program. And in that, we were looking at supporting returning citizens, individuals with a criminal record, into opening their own businesses using entrepreneurship as empowerment. And as we built that program, it was very important for that to be stakeholder-led and stakeholder-driven. And we had a very active and supportive stakeholder group there. And we saw the power of community coming together. So um, both to inform what government is doing, but also to create additional solutions through that networking um, and by being convened. And so we took the stakeholder model and we've moved that into cooperatives. We're moving that into disability support for disabled business owners. Um, We've moved that into a number of other topics. Okay, so you have returning citizens, the folks that have been incarcerated, Mm -hmm. have been in jail, Mm -hmm. and you're helping them to come when they come out to start their own business. Correct. What kind of businesses do they start? So there, you know, we encourage people when they are are looking to start the business to both have a dream of something that they want to do and to find something that with whatever skills and money they have right now will will make money. So some of the businesses that we've seen come out, um, there is an accountant. Um, We have uh, Vow Transportation, which is um, transportation services uh, for those with disabilities. We have um, a number of cleaning and services businesses um, and and people. We have a a caterer and so a a number of different businesses all across the board. We didn't restrict it to any sort of of industry. Fantastic. All right. Entrepreneurship. Do you know that in Italy and in Puerto Rico they have co-ops in the prisons? So we've heard a little bit about that, and the Aspire program is one of the one of the many reasons that I was interested in cooperatives. Um, it's it's sort of still at a theorized idea. But we'd love to be able to move more Aspire programming inside um, of facilities. And one of the things that we thought about is if there was a co-op that um, helped people work before they opened their business, that that might be a very supportive way for people to be able to launch businesses. In talking about the co-op in Italy, what I was it's a bakery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they won some prestigious award, the best <laughs> Italian bread of mm-hmm. some sort. But you have people outside of the prisons in the co-op and people in the prison in the co-op. And so people in the prison are making bread and doing whatever they do, and they are learning how to solve problems and you know get along. And they have a job, their owner, owner member, Okay, when they get out. And so like people coming back to prison was like three percent. So it really that's in that program. Mm -hmm. Uh, There is a selection process in order to get into the co-op inside the prisons. So that you may say they take the cream of the crop. And so the likelihood of them coming back at first is probably smaller. But when you go from recidivism rate of I don't know what is it here. 70, 80 percent? Yeah, so there are different numbers because we have a federal number and a local number, so uh-huh. they're, they're working to align those. Okay. But they're much higher than 3 percent. Right. <laughs> okay. So I'm very much excited about what we could do in the prison system. As you can see, I'm African-American, and I have four or five of my nephews black men and two or three of great nephews in jail. Mm-hmm. And so it's really important to me personally and as in our community and our society to see what we can do to not get so many black men in jail, but also what we can do once they are in there, what they can do to get out. 
Yeah, um, there, there are a couple of principles that I have learned from the reentry community that I think are important to both what you're saying and you know part of how we think about co-op development as well. Um, the first one is this phrase, um, each one teach one. Um, so the idea of teaching um, a skill to someone in the reentry community um, and then that they would pass that skill forward and that knowledge forward to someone else to help create a supportive community. So there's already a strong community aspect within that. Um, but the other thing that, that we have recognized as we look to support the Aspire program is that D.C. has um, a unique situation in terms of facilities where, where people are incarcerated. And so while in many states, people will be incarcerated within state, in D.C., people are all across the country, right. uh, which makes both reentry services as well as programs like this a little more challenging. Right, right. I remember visiting Lorton, and you, you'd come in, and you'd walk down some steps. And so before you walk down the steps, there's like a gymnasium, two gymnasium size full of, mostly black men, and you saw almost no gray, mm -hmm. okay? And anybody that looked white was normally uh, Latino. Mm -hmm. So it was, just, it was just amazing walking in there and then taking a survey of who was in the prison. And then when they split that up, you have to, the families have to travel all over the U.S. in order to see the people. I, I really appreciate what you're doing with the Aspire program. It said here that you are looking to meet people where they are, building community, and building community wealth in that program. Mm -hmm. And those are stakeholder-created um, and, and driven goals. Um, so part of the stakeholder process was for those who came forward to meetings to really define what they wanted the goals of the program to be, and whether that was the goals of specifically the Aspire program or the larger space of supporting returning citizen entrepreneurs. And I think some of it is to that larger space. So Aspire is, we're very proud of it, and we, we want to keep building it, but we also recognize that there is space for more programming and different styles of programming as well. I really like the idea of co-ops inside the prisons, they, although that would be really hard to say we want these to be for prisoners from D.C. since they're all over, unless we can get co-ops all over the mm -hmm. nation, which I would like that too. Um, let's go to, I, I'm always fascinated about your background, going from child care to law school to antitrust and then creating entrepreneurs because in antitrust, you trying to look at where there are monopolistic behavior, where people have more control over whatever business that they're in so they can set prices, keep other people out of the business, and make a larger profit is why people like monopolies. Or oligopolies, I believe, was where you have, instead of one, you have maybe five, six, seven, eight people in it, but you're still getting... Entry into that market for mm -hmm. somebody who's not in it is very, very difficult. Yeah, and I think what, what you just mentioned, um, sort of a term, in our, a term of art in antitrust law is barriers to entry. And barriers to entry can happen for all sorts of, of different reasons. Um, and they can happen in these large industrial spaces in which you do see monopolists. But they can also happen in small-scale spaces as well. So there can be a lot of barriers to entry. And sometimes they're formal and sometimes they're informal. And so part of what we're doing is trying to either knock down barriers or have people innovate their ways either around them or through them or one way or another. And so... The Department of Small and Local Business Development, particularly your innovation area, is helping people identify those and then 
How do we evolve them? We're, we're trying to. Um, so one of the things that's great about entrepreneurship is that, you know, it, it takes um, a lot of creativity um, and teaches people to, to be creative and, and to keep looking through that. So it's not always easy um, to knock down barriers, but, but sometimes it's first getting that entrepreneurial mindset. And a lot of the grantees that we work with that run programs really try to train both an ownership mentality um, and that entrepreneurial mindset. And we find that that mindset, even if you choose not to pursue business, uh, can be very valuable in whatever endeavors you're going for, which is why a lot of people are starting to talk about a term intrapreneur. Um, so if you're working in another organization, you can still take that entrepreneurial mindset and, and make value from it. Well, I was talking about intrapreneur last night at a dinner. I didn't know that's what it was called. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, I like that. The mindset. I'm in property management is what I do daytime. And I learned about co-ops, managing housing co-ops. And what I noticed was getting people to go from a tenant mentality to an owner mentality is a huge gap. I mean, it's a large jump to get people to move that. But once you get people to move there, the housing co-op functions so much better. Once that they are owners, they know they're owners. How do you get this entrepreneur mindset to work? I mean, I think it happens a lot of different ways, but for most people, they just, they catch the bug Um, and they catch the bug for different reasons. Um, Sometimes they want to be their own boss. Um, Sometimes they're, they're not finding options uh, within the labor market. Um, And a lot of times it's through dreams. You know, they have a dream of something that they want to do and they know that the only way that they're going to be able to pursue that dream is pursuing it on their own. And so they need to carve their own path. And so it's a very positive space. Well, we're going to come back and talk about the dreams. Uh, We're going to take our first break now, Uh, Kate. So we'll be right back. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOM, 95.9 FM. back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. The program is Everything Cooperative. And this morning in studio with us is Kate Marion. And we're talking about creating co-ops in the district. And the district government is um, pursuing this through the Department of Small and Local Business Development. And we were talking about dreams before we went off and what, what would cause people to become an entrepreneur. The entrepreneur is really taking a risk starting a business, um, catch the bug. Uh, for me, it was wanting to make money. I mean, it's real. And that was my dream to live in the house and have the car and the clothes and be able to take vacations and some sense of having to control your own time. Although I found out that in the entrepreneur world, you don't <laughs> control your time either. <laughs> your clients control your time. The bank controls your time. IRS controls your time. So there's a lot of different people to control your time. Um, so we have Patricia on the line. Good morning, Patricia. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I would like to know your host's name and the phone number where I can contact her later. You want her name and her phone number where she can contact you later? Okay. Yeah, so I, so I can contact her later. Okay. Fantastic. You can call um, the Department of Small and Local Business Development at, let me get this number right, it's 202-727-3900. Just a second, don't talk to us. 727-3900. And what would I ask for? Um, You can ask to speak with Kate. Kate. 
Okay. Now, it's for the, uh, the young people who are just coming, coming from getting out of prison? Yes, they, she helps people coming out of prison. They try to get to them as soon as they can. Oh, um, 
then it's called a worker cooperative. And what I got when you said a daycare co-op and the workers want to own it, then that would be a worker cooperative. Although in Greenbelt, uh, there's a daycare center, and I, my understanding, this may not be totally true, but my understanding is the people that uses the co-op, the, co the parents own it. Mm-hmm. And so when the people that uses the product or services own the business, it's called a consumer cooperative. And so food co-ops are an example of consumer co-ops, although they could be owned by the employees, and it's a worker cooperative. And there was one I, I was introduced to in, Washington, in the state of Washington that's both. They, it was a consumer cooperative, and then they figured out over time how both the employees and the consumers could own the business, so they had both. Um, the other type of consumer co-ops that we know about a lot, and most people don't know that credit unions are co-ops, that's a consumer. It's owned by the people to make the deposits there. And housing co-ops are consumer co-ops. So those are some some examples. There's a consumer co-op in D.C. called CPA. That is, it's a group of people that have come that came together, and they were buying the same thing. The economies of scale that you talked about for farmers, mainly for charter schools and churches. Churches were getting ripped off on things like uh, trash collection, copier machines. Um, both in the, the contract and the amount that they were paying. Uh, so by coming together and having a group of people that can negotiate the contract and negotiate the price so they understand this this whole buying process so they can get a better product at a lower price for their members. And they've done that with electricity, with utilities, uh, copiers, uh, all kinds of different services. Okay, and now they're looking to take that out into other communities. That's in a D.C., uh, Maryland community. So that's the consumer and the worker. So any work, there's also a consumer corp that just came to D.C. called REI, and that's where people that go hiking and outdoors, uh, and a group of people started that co-op because they could not find the, I think, 40s maybe, 50s, that they could not find the equipment that they wanted. They'd have to go send it for outside of the U.S. to buy the equipment. So there was a need, and they formed a co-op, and now it's quite big. So the other two t- types of co-ops, main co-ops, as you already mentioned, are what the farmers use. And so farmers have, I don't know how farmers could even work before co-ops <laughs> because they had to buy products and services they need to plant or to, or to uh, grow their cattle or pigs or whatever they're farming, and then they have to sell them. Mm-hmm. So they have to do all of these things. So they, get, they got co-ops that would come together to help them to buy whatever they need, whether that's tractors or gas or feed or fertilizers. And so those cooperatives are called purchasing co-ops. Mm-hmm. And then they do the farming and create whatever they create on their land. And then they, have, they created some other co-ops on the other end that sells their products. And Cabot Cheese uh, is a Cabot Creamery uh, where... Dairy farmers will send, I think I heard 900 dairy farmers. It might have been 9,000 or Mm nine. I don't get out of the numbers here. So they would send all of their milk to Cabot Cheese so they know who's going to buy it. Now, Cabot Cheese or Cabot Creamy can send milk or cheese out through markets that the farmers could not do. Mm -hmm. So it's a fantastic way of both creating, buying what they need, economies of scale, People, if 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 you got buy if they buying things, 
in volume, they get a lower price and normally a better product. And then they can sell it and get a better product because they have more markets to go. Right. So it works so extremely well. My understanding, which may not be entirely accurate, is that a lot of the farming co-ops actually came about um, sort of in the wake of the Industrial Revolution. So when the economy changed from an agrarian economy to an industrial economy, um, you know, we didn't have as many laborers and as many workers in those spaces, and there was a lot more need um, to look at how the agricultural community was going to to come back from a major shift in the way that it operated. Um, And so that was a transformation. And one of the reasons that, you know, when I think about that shift in the agrarian economy, we are also now changing from an industrial economy to whatever term you want to give it, whether it's digital or information or IT or technology. But there's clearly a shift away from an industrial economy to something else that's happening. But there are still types of um, businesses that will need to exist, just like types of farmers needed to exist. And they may need to look at how they are doing their businesses differently in order to achieve market rates. So how we're going to do things differently in this environment um for returning citizens or people out there in the community that may not have a job, they can find work by creating their own businesses come together. We're going to take our second break. If you have any questions, you can call in at 1-800-450-7876, and we'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOS, 95.9 FM. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome back. We are talking about creating co-ops in Washington, D.C., creating businesses, entrepreneurship, jobs, businesses, wealth. Uh, and Kate Marin is our, is our guest today. And if you needed to reach her, you can call her at 202-727-3900. If you have any information that you want to, the Aspire program is returning citizens, uh, coming back in and creating entrepreneur spirits, getting them to get the right mindset for owning their own business or being an entrepreneur inside a larger company uh, once you catch the bug. Okay, getting things done and being creative. You have to be creative if you're going to be an entrepreneur. And also the getting the removing the barriers to entry is some of the things that we've talked about. But, Kate, let's go back. This daycare co-op, I know that there's two in the area. One is in Greenbelt and one is on Capitol Hill, housed inside of a school. And I tried to get them on a program, but, but unsuccessfully. How would this daycare co-op work, or what, is, what are they envisioning? So, uh, and it's interesting because I'm not familiar with the one on Capitol Hill. We haven't connected yet, but there is um, a forming daycare cooperative near Logan Circle um, that has, uh, it, it came out of a housing cooperative um, and it has a lot of grant support that's coming in. And um, many of these uh, women who are looking to start the daycare cooperative are um, ESL. So they are Spanish language speakers. And so they're getting support with translation. They're getting support with organizing. So a number of different groups have come in um, to help support what the creation of the co-op would look like, including the UDC Law School for legal resources and, and other spaces. Do you know who's working at the UDC Law School, who they're working with? So it's the the clinic, and I believe that that is um, either Dean or, or Professor Louise Howells. 
Louise House is the name I was looking for because I've worked with her before. She's quite good. And, and you know, the question of legal resources, um, given that I have a legal background, has been one that we've been very interested in finding out more information about because we have not found a lot of lawyers who support cooperative development or have that skill set. I think they're, they may be here in the district. We just haven't found them yet. Um, but that's clearly an important element of creating cooperatives. It's interesting. In, in the housing co-ops, Rick Eisen just knows a whole lot in the housing co-op. And there's a guy, O'Toole, I can't get remember his first name, uh, who was also very knowledgeable about housing co-ops. But I don't know who would be in terms of starting co-ops, like the worker co-ops that we were talking about or other co-ops, who would know it. Uh, Louis House, it seemed like, would be a good person to start with and UDC. Okay, that's the daycare center. Hmm. It's starting out of a housing co-op, so that gets to the sixth principle, cooperation among co-ops. Mm-hmm. Uh, where you're in one co-op and then you start another one. In Logan Circle, okay, that's high rent district now too. Um, what about the food co-op? So uh, we understand that there is um, a group, I believe it is in Historic Anacostia, that has been working um, for a couple of years to start um, a food co-op, hopefully a, a grocery store. Um, and they're, they're doing organizing efforts right now, um, and they're very active in, in the stakeholder group. Um, but I think uh, with, their, with their volunteer organizers, right now they're just at the, at the space of marketing. And I think one of the um, challenges that many of the stakeholders uh, bring forward is that not a lot of people know what co-ops are, or they only think of housing co-ops. And so they're looking for places to just expose people to the co-op idea um, so that they can help then have people buy into building out a co-op. I've had Damien Bascom on the show. He's a great young man, a lot of energy, a lot of enthusiasm. Um, and he's helping to create this community grocery co-op. And if you would like to get information, to a, they have monthly meetings uh, every second Saturday. Uh, you could go on their website, communitygrocerycoop at gmail.com. And their telephone number is 202-567-7498. You could become a member. Uh, you can join the board, become a volunteer, help spread the word. There was a, a co-op uh, in Greens, in North Carolina, I think Greensboro, North Carolina. It took them four years, a food co-op, to get started. Uh, Renaissance cooperative. Mm-hmm. So it takes time to get people to understand what a co-op is, to understand how much the buy-in, the second principle is um, of co-ops is you put money in, there's the economic piece, you put money in, and you can also, when there's a profit, you can get money out in terms of dividends. So I'm not sure what the buy-in here, in, in Renaissance it was $100. And I think they got about 1,000 people mm-hmm. involved, and then they got the city to help put up some money or guarantee loans for them. And they've, they've opened up. I want to get down there to look at their co-op. A Piggly Wiggly left the community. Hmm. And so this warehouse, the grocery store space, at I think 10, 12, 15 years, it just sat there. Okay. And then it was a desert. There was no fresh fruits and vegetables. So they created a co-op in there. Where members are owners. Okay. What about, okay, you said some housing co-ops? Mm-hmm. I know Anita Barnes had a hearing on limited equity co-ops were affordable housing co-ops, Councilman Lynn, Anita Barnes, and they're starting um, a stakeholders meeting for that. I haven't heard about that yet. Okay. 
to try to figure out, because a lot of the smaller housing co-ops have a very, very hard time with management. They, they four units, ten units, really cannot afford management companies, and too often, and then they don't know how to manage it. Uh, and if you get one or two people that don't pay, they don't work. So just trying to get them the help that they need so they can survive. And, and it creates a, a nice living space and very affordable living. I think that's um, it's why it's interesting for to see the housing co-ops come forward to the stakeholders group because in the stakeholders group, they're really looking at, you know, can they start either a peer-to-peer network or can they start um, some sort of co-op development center trying to understand where is the best space and where can they start to build up centralized resources for cooperatives in the district. There is another group that's forming at the Ella Jo Baker Intentional Community Co-op in, um, where would that be? 14th and Belmont up in that area. And they've met three or four times to, and they're limited equity co-ops. I think mainly limited equity co-ops forming to try to, and these are the cooperators themselves. Matter of fact, they didn't want anybody else. I went to two meetings and they kicked me out. (laughs) We only want cooperators in here. And I understand that they want to be able to talk openly and then try to figure out what their needs are and then how they would solve them. So I said, if, if you need our help in any kind of way, then then let us know. So there's a group forming there. And like I said, Anita Barnes had a hearings on uh, co-ops, limited equity particularly, and now they're starting a, a, a group there. So what about the technology group co-op? So that's a that's an interesting project. Um, I think started by two individuals who um, you know they they have full time work within um, tech uh, spaces in, in larger companies here in the district. Um, but as they wanted to create what, what some people refer to as a side hustle, um, they wanted to do work in addition to their regular work. They wanted to figure out what was the best format um, to work with about six or eight individuals who would be doing small projects. And they were very excited and interested in the co op idea. And so um, particularly one member who's been working with the rest of them to say this is what it would look like if we had a co-op of um, sort of tech-skilled individuals running projects for individuals. So that way that way, it's essentially a number of freelancers coming together, creating, creating strength amongst them. What would be the technology? So I think a lot of it is either web development or um, app development or data, data analysis. Okay. What's also interesting is, particularly for the worker co-op, I've heard of engineering companies come together. Um, you can have, when workers own it, any kind of company. And now there's another great piece for you to look at. Uh, I went to a conference in Cincinnati three years ago now, two or three years ago, out of a group called One Worker, One Vote a Cooperative. But they're looking at, there's a lot of, what are we called? Our group of 60 and 70 and 80 year olds that own businesses and one way to sell their business is to sell it to the employees and they form a Mm co-op you can have an ESOP or a co-op the difference between an ESOP that they may not control the business they may own it Mm -hmm. or a portion of it but they may not control it but in a co-op they can control and own the business when when we've talked to national co-op policy um, individuals they've they've often referenced that type of cooperative um, and some people have been very interested in exploring that here in the district Uh, we haven't to to date really had very many business owners or others who have touch points on business owners who are reaching retirement come to the stakeholders group Uh, 
very welcome to come out. We do those monthly. Um, they're currently um, happening at the Hive 2.0 um, in uh, historic Anacostia. Um, and so we'd be very happy to support that because we know that that's a, a major space, but, but we haven't found any of the business owners who, who might be interested. Um, and I'll mention one other type of sort of cooperative that sort of attaches to the, the tech cooperative. We haven't seen it yet, though I think I'm starting to hear a little bit about it. About two years ago, I went to a conference on platform cooperatism, um, and that's sort of the question of what if um, the Uber drivers owned Uber and understanding what some of these new spaces are um, where people are getting into gig work or 1099 work, and that's similar to the tech cooperative. Um, why, why do you necessarily need someone who's taking profit? And if you could put that profit across all the people who are doing the work, you don't need that much from the centralized space, or that's the, the theory. So that Uber or Lyft or could be a co-op. So that, that was the theory. And there are a number of different types of gig economy work um, that could come forward for that. Okay. Now, you said really, you said quickly where you're meeting. Can you go back to where you're meeting? Yeah, so it's going to be um, at the Hive 2.0. That's at 1231 Good Hope Road um, in historic Anacostia, so that's southeast. Um, we'll be doing that on Friday, July 28th um, from 1 to 3.30 p.m. There are Eventbrite listings on it, and I believe that the Hive is also um, cross-listing that. Friday, July 28th from what time? 1 to 3.30 Okay, July 28th from 1 to 3.30 at 1230 Good Hope Road, Southeast. Correct. It's called The Hive. And that's where also Damien meets on Saturday. Correct. Uh, at the same location, 3 to 5, if I recall. I think that's when they meet. So if you're interested in the community grocery co-op, you could go to The Hive at 1231 Good Hope Road, Southeast, the third Saturday of each month, I think is what he told me, from 3 to 5. Okay. Okay, so we talked about tight chip already. Are there any other types of co-ops that you could? See, I would like to see Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and different government or pseudo-government businesses become co-ops. Oh, that's interesting. Um, you know, I mean, at this point in time, uh, we're, we're helping to just raise uh, the awareness of, of cooperatives. And, you know, I think I, I haven't heard anyone come forward and say that any particular type of business couldn't work as a co-op. Um, so it just seems like another form of, of corporate structure and corporate ownership uh, for how something is put together. See, the reason I'm t if you have a government entity that's doing work and you look at the employees that are doing that work, if they own the business, it seemed like there would be a greater buy-in to the product and the services, that they would produce a better product and service once they know their own and their name is to it. So you'd get perhaps get out of the bureaucracy of, of government-owned businesses, okay, and you could get things done better. But also, if they're the profit, they could share in their profit in creating the wealth that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. We haven't seen any examples, um, but various different stakeholders have theorized the, the question of whether or not cooperatives could start as public-private partnerships and then the government be bought out over time. I don't know if that's advisable. Um, we haven't really studied it, but but it has been theorized. That's a great idea. I like the idea. I like the concept. Why co-ops? There's a book uh, created by Democracy Collaborative. It's called Cities Building Community Wealth. 
And we're going to talk about that when we come out to the next break and uh, look at how you finance co-ops and how you get them started. But we're going to take our last and final break. The hour goes by real quick, Kate. I, th- I think we could talk two or three hours here. But we, will, <laughs> we will want to have you back. Um, we are getting ready to take our next break. Please call if you have any questions or comment. 1-800-450-7876. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOF, 95.9 FM. Information is power, and that's why the National Corporate Bank sponsors this program. Uh, NCB's mission is to support and be an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, especially in low-income communities, by providing innovative financial and related services. And they do a great job. If you have need for a loan, you could contact NCB at ncb.coop. So, Kate is in studio with us today from the D.C. government. And, you know, Kate, uh, New York has put in their budget uh, last year $2.5 million to create worker-owned cooperatives, and this year is $2.6 million. And the city of Madison, Wisconsin, put a million dollars a year for five years in their budget to create co-ops. And I would really like to see the district do something like that. Uh, I got a big smile from her. I think she's in agreement. <laughs> so, so I mean, uh, br- briefly to um, sort of budgeting that happens across city government. So I, I'm a staff member in one of the agencies, and so that's that's above my pay grade. Uh-huh. Um, but one of the things that we like to do through stakeholders is, you know, help people who want to advocate for certain things just meet each other and decide, you know, how, how they want to take those pieces forward. So cooperatives is a piece of my time. We want to make sure that it sort of stays on the table and on the agenda. Um, but, but when it comes to a question of budget, that's, that's definitely comes into the political process, which is, which is away from my work. Okay. All right. We'll take that on. We'll keep it up. I keep it. I, I keep presenting it so we can, we can get to, I'm, I'm just pleased that you are doing this. I, I talked to Vincent, Gray and his staff, um, as you know, he has 23 laws up where he's got getting money to produce a build a hospital in Ward 8. He has $300 million budgeted and he, he needs 336. And he also has some laws to build um, a couple of stores, one in Ward 7, a grocery store, and one in Ward 8, because those are considered food deserts. So I, I've talked to them and testified that perhaps he could, with the same money, build four uh, co-ops uh, because they they come in lower boxes. They don't need as much space for a co-op normally. But the benefits of co-ops, I mean, why a co-op? Um, so, I mean, I think for, for cooperatives, I mean, I think it does a few things. Um, it allows more people um, to share in the profit, um, you know, so potentially to increase their wages if they're working in a co-op. Um, and it also allows a lot more voice in terms of what the services and the products are. Um, so if you're really looking to align um, a business to community needs, that community voice helps make sure that the products and the services are both at the right price point and actually the ones that they can take up. And, you know, I, d- I don't know as much about this point, um, 
um, but we hear that, you know, for individuals who want to put sweat equity in, uh, particularly at the beginning, that sweat equity can then translate into dollars. So if they don't have dollars to invest in something, they can use their sweat equity in order to um, receive products and services. There's another reason. Um, the co-ops, if you go to a grocery store, um, and I forgot where Safeway headquarters and Giants headquarters and Harris Teeter's headquarters, but they're not in the district. And if you had a co-op, the people that live in the district own and operate that co-op, so the money stays inside the district. And it may turn six, seven, eight times inside the district where when you go and buy at one of these other stores, the money, the profit goes right out. Mm-hmm. Some of the money in terms of salaries may stay in the district, but the profit goes right out. And there are a few other pieces to the, particularly with grocery stores, um, that, that sort of attach to our Aspire program as we look at that. We have a number of people who um, have CDLs and are drivers. Um, and then there are a number of forming um, urban gardeners, which are being strongly supported by the University of District Columbia or, or doing it on their own. But we have um, a growing and soon-to-be thriving urban ag scene. And so being able to have local produce, being able to close the circle on food waste and just have an entire ecosystem around food and have that food be of recipes and of types of food that people really want. You know, it gets a lot closer uh, to communities if if it's local. So at the hearing for Reverend uh, Reverend Gray, <laughs> Councilmember Gray's uh, laws, the 23 laws that he has in place, it was it, very interesting. It, it was started at 11, supposed to have been over at 1. I testified after about 60 other people at 4 o'clock, mm-hmm. okay, and so I was able to sit there for five hours and listen to testimony. And all of it, almost all of it, talked about the ecosystem. You can't just build a hospital and get better health. You've got to have good food and you have to have exercise. And they talked about why people don't have food. I mean, they put freezers. I would walk in when we do inspect, I see freezers. Why do you have freezers? Maybe they have a lot of meat. And they said, no, you have to get a taxi to go, uh, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes away to buy groceries. Mm-hmm. And so that's expensive, and so they'll buy a lot and then freeze it so they'll have it. Mm-hmm. I never thought about that. And so all of the problems when you don't have grocery stores local. Uh, so it, it was absolutely amazing. So you got four, you had, we had four reasons, uh, money, create wealth, voice, and I call that uh, uh, social wealth. You learn how to talk and solve problems inside the community and learn how to talk to politicians and police officers. You get sweat equity, turn into dollars, and you build community. There was a lady on the program, I think you would like this, Kate, a lady from the U.K. who was the president of the International Cooperative Alliance, and she said co-ops bring people out of poverty with dignity. Mm -hmm. And I really, really like that. I've I've had a lot of sayings on this program, but that was the one that I like best. And I think maybe some of that has to do with the question of risk when we were talking about entrepreneurship in an earlier segment. Um, part of entrepreneurship is being able to, to manage risk and be able to take on risk. And, and sometimes you can't take it on yourself, but when you take on risk with others, it's one of the first ways in which you mitigate risk. So in this book, I started talking about cities building community wealth. They talk about Christina, an immigrant from Mexico who lives in New York, has a couple children, and she was cleaning houses. And kind of like as a maid making $7 an hour, they created a co-op, and her hourly wage went from $7 to $20. 
And so that's what I would like to see. Now, when I've talked about this, I'll get people to say, that doesn't happen all the time. Okay, I got that. Mm-hmm. But if it happened one time <laughs> for this one family. Yeah. So what Christina did, what they talk about here is she worked less hours so she could have time with her family. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I thought that was, it gave her the opportunity to have that balance of family. I don't know if she was working 50 or 60 hours a week and then she cut it back to 30 or 40. But you can do a lot when you triple your income. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and I don't know Christina's um, story, but we, we do know that there are a lot of um, people who are engaged in self-entrepreneurship who may be in the informal economy. They may not have licensed businesses, and it's a lot harder to seek assistance, um, whether it's financial assistance or through a loan, um, whether it's through marketing and business development assistance through the city. And so cooperatives are a way for people to first get into the, the licensed economy for self-employment and for small businesses as well. Um, and so it is, you know, that, that helps people learn just the, the legal landscape of how do you go about following all the compliance with, with a lot of different laws as it's mm-hmm. coming in because that can be built into the cooperative. And so that may be one of the elements, in, in, if not in Christina's story, then in stories that are similar to hers. Well, what, what is so interesting, I like if we could go fairly often, 50% of the time, where you could raise people's job rate from 7 to 20. I like that better than going to the minimum wage to 15. And the reason raising the minimum wage, my sense of it is that all the products and services will raise so you can get inflation Mm -hmm. when you raise the minimum wage. Uh, In this way, one of the reasons that this is able to go so high is they take the administration and management out of the middle with their profit motive, and they share that. Now, she could also be cleaning the houses, but she also perhaps has to have some time to help manage the business, mm-hmm. which gives them that that ability to raise that money. And potentially to market their services to a broader audience because she's not marketing just her services. They are marketing the services of the, the co-op, co-op. Um, and so they're able to get a wider spread. I like that. Now, the research I did about food co-ops is they only have a, a dollar spread. There's a dollar more that the workers in a food co-op get over and above what a, mm-hmm. a grocery store person makes. But there was also like 10 to 15% of the people in the food co-op more had health benefits, mm-hmm. more than in a grocery store. Yeah, and they have access to the food that is in the store. Right. Yeah, mar- margins on food businesses all, all across are, are very tight. And so, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a, an ever rising efficiency game in terms, in terms of food, but there are different ways to find efficiency. So at the large scale, when someone is looking for efficiency, they may be cutting uh, middlemen out and doing, doing other questions like that. Um, but efficiency at a small scale level may be how do you make the most of food that, that may go to waste otherwise. Do you like what you're doing? Yes, I love it. Why? Because, you know, having, Having grown up in rural America, which which was struggling, um, and, and really thinking about you know how do communities come together and sort of build for themselves was something that I took there. And when I came to D.C. many years ago, really thinking about how those same principles are exactly the same, whether you're in a rural or an urban context. It's the same. We only have a minute or so left. What message would you like to leave people with? It? Um, you know, I think co-ops are a, a fantastic and, and interesting way to think about getting into to entrepreneurship. Um, but w- whether it's through entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship, cooperatives, you know, really looking towards the future and where is community wealth built, um, just starting to think about what that looks like and, and how you want to build that in your community. So however you want to build it, you could contact te- Kate. Uh, 
at the Department of Small and Local Business Development. She's in charge of technology and innovation at 202-727-3900. Thank you for joining in today. Kate, thank you so much for being here. I really enjoyed our conversation. I'd love to have you back. And you all have a great week. Live cooperatively. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM WOS and 95.9 FM.